Remembering is very important. We like to remember. We experience life in our remembering. We have very special days. We have anniversaries. We have birthdays in which we remember things that are very precious to us, good things. Sometimes we don't just have anniversaries of weddings or engagements. Sometimes they're anniversaries of things that were not our best days, anniversaries of deaths or tragedies or things that didn't go the way we expected. On those days, we have solemn remembrance of things that have worked themselves deep into our hearts. But the thing about remembering is remembering is, is helping us to, to take what we've seen and bring it into our lives today. If we don't remember the things that have happened to us, it's like they never happened. It's like they are a total loss. And you know what that's like. I mean, you, there, there's times in your lives where there's something that has happened and you've not thought about it for a very long time, and then all of a sudden you think about it and you go, oh, that's right, I remember that. Our family has a situation like that. We had a house fire um, the day after 4th of July, well, middle of the night on 4th of July, about eight years ago. Our neighbor's house burned to the ground and ours nearly did as well. And it was one of those situations where it's like, Lord, what are you doing? What, what is this? And the Lord's just going, just you wait, watch and see. And so we have a remembrance in our, in our house. We have uh, a psalm up on the wall that talks about walking through the flames, um, and it's a remembrance. Um, and up until like this year, actually, we forgot this year, talking about remembering, not good at it. Um, every year until this year, we would take the firefighters in our local fire station some cookies um, just to thank them. But we create memorials. We create things to help us remember. You know, if you'd fought in the Second World War, if you were someone who had, 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 had fought in that great campaign, and you go to Washington, D.C., and you drive into Arlington, and you see this gigantic statue known as the Marine Corps War Memorial. Most of you know it as the Iwo Jima Memorial. You see this gigantic statue of these men raising the flag on Mount Suribachi, this incredible picture. What does it bring up if you are a veteran of World War II? Brings up the loss of a friend, family member. Brings up a time of uncertainty. Because even though we look back on it now and we know the good guys won, it wasn't a certainty. Maybe it's why we fought the war. Maybe it's other sacrifices. But it brings all this up because you've experienced it. Now what about us? If we drive down to Arlington and we go up to that memorial and we've not fought in the war, what does it stir up in us? Well, ideally, it should stir up in us a desire to honor those heroes who died for us and their sacrifice. It also should stir up in us these, this idea of what did they fight for? What's the purpose? What was the bigger thing? And then to remind us how there's a few brave individuals standing between us and chaos, right? So that's what this memorial does, these psalms we've been going through, 104, 105, and then next week, 106, are all memorials to different aspects that we need to remember. But unlike the Iwo Jima Memorial, 
Unlike um, all these different memorials that you can see in Washington, D.C., this is not about a war. This is not about heroes. This is about God. This psalm today is a psalm of remembrance of who God is because the problem we have is that just like Israel, some 6,000, 5,000, 4,000, whatever number it is, years ago, when they were walking through the wilderness, when they were impressed into slavery in Egypt, when the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when these men were in the midst of, is God going to keep his promise? They needed to remember that, yes, God is a God who keeps his promises. And it's the same thing for us today, because there's so many times when we're walking through our lives and we're going, this makes no sense at all. There is no way that this is going to work out for good. God has broken his word. This is why we need a Psalm 105 to say, look, he kept his word. It may not have looked like it was going to end up that way, but look at what it did. So this psalm is going to take several instances where if you were in the midst, and I'm going to do my best to get you in the midst of these stories, and if you were there, you would go, there ain't no way this is going to work out. This is the end of God's promise to Israel. And then, lo and behold, God, the master story writer, has written this story that only he could do, and praise be to God, he keeps his word. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, because we worship a God who is faithful. We worship a God through history has kept his word over and over and over again. He is the protector. He's the provider. He's the rescuer. He's the promise keeper. He's the source of all joy. And we're going to see that in this psalm. Because honestly, if we don't look at history with, through the lens that God is directing it, it makes no sense at all. It's like the backside of a tapestry. It's all these knots and it makes no sense, but only when God turns it over and says, look at this piece of artwork that I've created. Do you see what he's doing? So in this psalm, we see the wonders of God recounted, kind of like what we saw last week with creation. We see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and if you don't know who those people are, you're gonna get a quick lesson on them here in a minute. God gave them a land called Canaan, the promised land. Then God uproots one of Israel's kids and sends him off to Egypt. Then he sends the people to Egypt. He enslaves them. And then Moses and Aaron come along. And through Moses and Aaron, God frees the Israelites. Then they wander in the wilderness and then they finally end up in the Holy Land, the Promised Land. So as we look at this, it would be a bad assumption on my part that everybody in the room knows all of these stories. So if you're here today, it might be a little difficult because these are stories of a whole bunch of people that you're like, I'm not Jewish and I don't, I don't understand how they relate. And that's fine because that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to show how it relates to you. But for many of you, you know these stories. You've heard them before. You're not going to think Joseph just had a technicolor dream coat you're going to know that there's a whole big story there. But I want you today to not let the fact that you know the story miss out, make you miss out on the fact that God is weaving this. This psalm doesn't let us go, well, you know, Joseph was just really lucky. You know, Moses and Aaron, they were just good public speakers. You know, Abraham, he was just a really swell guy. 
That's not allowed in any of this. The psalmist says, no, it is God who does it. This psalm is 100% about God. Its focus is not on Israel. Even though it's Israel's history, it's God did this, and God did that, and God did that. And we need to start looking at our lives that way, that God is in control, and God is in charge, and we need to learn to trust him. So that's what we're going to do today in this psalm. Because it's good to stop and go, let's look at things from God's perspective. And this psalm allows us to do that. Now, this psalm structure is unique. First six verses are kind of the conclusion to the psalm. And then verses 7 through 45 are the reason. So one of the other pastors who's preaching this today, right about now actually, he's actually going to teach verses 7 through 45 and then conclude with 1 through 6. And I thought that was pretty ingenious. I'm not going to copy him on that though. But I think it's pretty smart on his part. So what we see is we see the first six verses are all about rejoicing and remembering. This is what we're called to do. And then the rest of the psalm is him telling us all the things we should remember. So the context of this psalm is this is a psalm that would be sung every year at the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths was the last feast that the Israelites would do. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. And what they would do is they would leave the city and go sleep in tents, booths, outside the city. There was not any glamping. And there was not any trailers, there was no water hookup, no electricity. Some of you think that that's camping, I know, but you know, <laughs> that they were outside the city and they, they on purpose deprived themselves to remind themselves of what it was like to be in Egypt and then being kicked out of Egypt. So that's kind of the purpose behind this. So let's dig in. Psalm 105, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. So the opening line, give thanks to the Lord, probably needs to be translated more like testify about the Lord. So when it's saying give thanks, what it's saying is announce to people, verbally announce to people, this is what our God's like. And in case we didn't get that, call upon his name probably should be translated, cry out loud about God. So you see these first two lines, they get kind of muddled in English because those are a good translation, but there's more to it. It's declare out loud what God is like, declare what he's done. What's amazing about these first six verses is that there are 11 imperatives. An imperative is a command to do something. There's 11 of them. So this whole opening section is, you need to do this, you need to do that, you need to do this. And then he tells us why in the second half of the psalm, in the rest of the psalm. He says, give thanks. He says, call upon his name. He says, make his deeds known. He says, sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence and remember his wondrous works. So he's saying there is work to be done. We are to do these things. Spurgeon, talking about singing to him in verse 2, says, Bring your best thoughts and express them in the best language to the sweetest of sounds. Take care that your singing is unto him and not merely for the sake of music or for others to hear. He's saying we are to sing to him. It's about singing to God. Then verse 4. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, the judgments he's uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, 
children of Jacob, his chosen ones. We see the word seek here three separate times. Seek the Lord, seek his strength, seek his presence. This is, we're to be stirred up and go after these things. We're to seek first him and then his strength and then his face. So we're to seek him and know him personally and then we're to get power from him. And then finally, we want to make him pleased. This is the seeking we're seeing here. So really what this is saying is remember what God did and then declare it to everyone around you. Tell everyone. Now, this doesn't mean you go stand on the street corner and be the annoying person, but there shouldn't be a person in your life who doesn't know all the amazing things that God has done for you. The continuation of our story about the fire is that almost six months to the day later, we went back to our house and we got a free house remodel. A free house remodel. I mean, everything in our front of our house was totally touched, from the lawn outside to the fences to the patios, all of it. The insurance covered all of it. It was our neighbor's fault, and so their insurance covered it. But how amazing is that? We never could have afforded a house remodel. But the Lord said, I'm going to light your house on fire. And there's many other little miracles in that. And if you want to hear some great ones, ask my wife. She's got tons of good stories. I could tell them, but she's cuter. So it's better to have her tell them. But there's all these stories of what the Lord had done, and it would never have been the way we would have drawn it up. It would never have been, hey, you know what? In the middle of the night at about 1.30, I want three drunk guys pounding on your door saying, hey, your house is on fire, and me throwing kids barely clothed into a van, backing out, nearly hitting the fire truck because they're sprinting because this house is on fire and ours is starting to go up. Not how I would have drawn up a house remodel. I don't think there's very many HGTV shows that are like, well, first we're going to light your house on fire, and then we're going to remodel everything. That's not the way it goes. So the Lord did that, and for me to not declare that to everyone is not remembering it. And if you don't remember it, it's like it didn't happen. And if it didn't happen, then guess what? There's no testimony, there's no praise, there's no pleasing of your Lord through it. So we are to remember this. Sadly, our memories don't do a very good job of this. I'm not sure why that is. We are very good at remembering things we shouldn't. You can still recall dirty jokes that you heard in junior high. You can recall mean words that someone said to you, even if they had couched it with 21 nice words. We can remember slanders. We can remember slights that people have done to us. But yet the God of the universe works a miracle in your life, and it sometimes falls out of your brain. And so we need to take the lesson of this. We need to remember what God has done. So that's what we see here in verse 5 and 6. Now, I want to comment on one thing here at the end, because it says at the end, chosen ones. All right? So there's this idea out there that God is this big meanie. Right? He went and he said, I'm going to look around at all these people and I'm going to choose Israel, which means I hate everybody else and you all stink and Israel's my, my crew. Right? So God is this totally judgmental, totally exclusionary God. That's not what that means. So I want to take you guys just on a little mental field trip to some place that some of you probably hated, others of you loved. But let's go to junior high math class for a second. 
okay? And you've got one of those math teachers who writes up on the board the problem. And then what does that math teacher do? Calls on someone in the class to stand up in front. Don't they know junior high is terrible anyways? They're going to have them stand up in front of everybody and try to do a math equation? So what has that teacher done? The teacher has taken one of the students, chosen that student, and put them up in front and said, show your work. Show me that you know what I've been teaching. Show me that you've done your homework. And if that student gets up and draws pictures, the teacher's like, you don't know any math, do you? Go sit down. There's shame there, right? There's, 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 there's looking down on by that teacher. But if that student goes up and aces it and goes, I can answer it this way, and I can answer it this way, and I can answer it this way, all the right answer, the teacher goes, wow, you're a good pupil. I've taught you well. So this is what Israel is to God. Israel is not chosen because they're the best. They're not chosen because they're the strongest or the biggest. As a matter of fact, they're the black sheep of every family. And yet God goes, I'm going to take them, and I'm going to put them up in front of the class, and you're all going to watch them. And when they do well, it pleases me, and it makes me look good. When they do poorly, it still shows how great I am, but look at how bad they are. See, Israel is not chosen because they could do it. Israel was chosen because they couldn't, and they needed to rely on God. And so this chosen crew put up in front, that's what Israel is. And we know that they fail. And we'll talk about their failings more next week. But if you think about it, God put his favor on this little teeny nation that has literally been at the center of the world for the last 4,000 years. I encourage you, if you don't believe that, try to go a week without seeing a news story about Israel. It's one of the smaller nations in the Middle East, and yet it is a driver of all sorts of stuff. God still is using Israel to this day. Does that mean they're perfect? No, but it does mean it's pretty amazing that this little place that God put his favor on and pulled out and said, everybody look at them, is still a focus to this day. So anyway, so that's, that's what God means when he says chosen ones. So now we get into really the meat of the psalm, seven, verse 7 through verse 42. This is all an emphasis of what he did. So as we're reading it, make sure we don't miss that it says God is doing this throughout. He starts off in verse 7 with a phrase, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word he commanded for a thousand generations. Okay, so first off, a covenant. A covenant is something that is made between two people, and usually what it would involve would be a sacrifice, and they would split the animal in two, and both people would walk through it. And what they're saying is, is if I don't keep my side of the covenant, I will be put to death. And God made covenants like that. The big one is with Abraham. And notice it says, God will keep his commandments or his covenants forever. And in case we don't grasp that, he says, you know, for a thousand generations. And you're like, wow, that's pretty intense. A thousand generations? How long ago was that? There have not been enough people who've lived on earth for us to have a thousand generations of people. We're talking over 40,000 years. That's if you count a generation as only 40 years. And praise be to God that it doesn't count to only 40 years because I'm older than 40, and I'm glad that generations don't end at 40. So this thousand generations means forever. God keeps his covenant forever. Verse 9, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, that's Abraham's son, which he confirmed to Jacob, that's Isaac's son. 
and then to Israel as an everlasting covenant. So your, your history is this. Abraham is a pagan living in modern-day Iraq, and God appears to him and says, you are mine, I'm pulling you out of this group, let's go. And Abraham says, okay, God, I'll do it. Abraham and his family, press his brother's son, they move to a place called Canaan. God says, I'm gonna give you this land. In verse 11, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. This faithful God who has appeared to Abraham. Abraham is told, you're gonna have many, many nations that come out of you. But we know the story of Abraham. He's well up in years. His wife is older, he's older, she's past uh, childbearing age. And so he goes, how is this gonna work? Oh, don't you worry, Abraham, we're gonna, we're gonna provide an heir. And so Abraham, of course, gets into it because he tries to do it on his own and messes everything up. We're still dealing with the repercussions of that to this day. But Abraham, again, how are you gonna do this, God? This makes no sense to me. I can't have kids. You're telling me my kids are gonna change the world and I'm gonna have so many descendants. How is that gonna work? And the Lord visits Sarah in her old age and gives her a son named Isaac. Then Isaac has several children. Jacob is the one that matters. Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel, he becomes the father of the Israelite nation. A.W. Tozer writes, this faithful God who never broke a promise, never violated a covenant, who never said one thing and meant another, who never overlooked anything or forgot anything, is the father of our Lord Jesus and the gospel. This is the God we adore and the God we preach. And like last week when we talked about how God holds everything together, the universe is held together by this God. Well, this is the same God who has never once contradicted himself, never once broken a promise. He makes five promises to us and to Israel. Noahic promise, this is the covenant that he makes. I will never flood the earth again. Then the Abrahamic covenant, that I will bless your children and they'll be a blessing to the whole world. The priestly covenant, which is that there will be a sacrifice and those sacrifices will take away the guilt of sin. The Davidic covenant, that there will be a king and a ruler from the line of David. And then finally the new covenant, which we celebrated last week with communion, but it's the covenant in Jesus' blood. So this is the Abraham portion. Again, not how you would have planned it. A random guy out of a random place moved to some place he's never been, and you're too old to have kids, but we're going to have more kids than you can count. Verse 12, when they, Israel, were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, Wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Now, Abraham had to learn this, and he kept trying to do things his own way, and God's going, no, no, do it my way, and he kept messing up, lying about what his wife was, saying it was his sister, and, and other different compromises, but throughout the Lord kept going, well, no, we're going to go this way, Abraham. No, no, we're going to go this way, Abraham. Like a parent guiding that two-year-old who wants to get into all the trouble, God's saying, no, this is the way we go. Because God is the one who rebukes the kings. God is the one who protects them in spite of themselves. Then look at verse 16. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he sent a man ahead of him, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the Lord tested him. 
So let's stop right there. So Joseph, I love this, okay? It says, God sent him ahead, right? So just the picture here is that Joseph is sent ahead of his brothers, all the descendants of Israel, of Jacob, is sent ahead to Egypt. And it's so kind of just kind of, oh, yeah, God just sent him there. Well, there's more to it than that, right? I mean, you don't want God to be your travel agent if you're Joseph, Because how God gets Joseph to Egypt is not, hey, we had this nice caravan and they got air-conditioned camels and and they just rode on it and you just kind of went into Egypt and you took a position. No, Joseph is one of those annoying brothers and for whatever reason, the Israel, the sons of Israel decide we can't handle this guy. And so they decide we're going to kill him. So they decide to throw him, they were going to kill him, then they decide to throw him into an empty well, and then they were like, well, why are we just killing him? Let's get, make some money off of him. They sold him as a slave. And this is how Joseph gets to Egypt. Not at all how Joseph would have planned to become the savior of Israel. But see, the thing was, Joseph needed to learn humility. Joseph needed to learn who this God was. Oh, and his story's not done yet. He gets to Egypt, right, and he's working for Potiphar. Potiphar's a wealthy man, and Joseph is working hard, and he's diligent. He works his way up in Potiphar's house, and he becomes second in charge. He's like, all right, I've arrived. Well, Potiphar's wife goes, wow, he's cute. And so she tries to seduce him. Joseph flees, so Potiphar's wife is hurt. So she says to Potiphar, he tried to rape me. So now Joseph is thrown in jail. Again, this is not how Joseph would have planned it, but without him going to jail, there's no way what happens next. And unfortunately for Joseph, what happens next is he rots in jail for a very long time. He interprets some dreams for two individuals, both of who worked for Pharaoh. Both of them go up to Pharaoh. One is put to death. The other one begins working for Pharaoh and forgets about Joseph. Joseph's plan doesn't work. I'm still stuck in jail until Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh can't interpret this dream, so he calls to all of his workers, and one of his workers goes, oh, I know a guy. So they bring Joseph up out of the prison. Joseph interprets the dream, and before you know it, he's second in charge of all of Egypt, the biggest, most powerful nation in the entire world, and Joseph is the number two, and some would argue the number one, because he's the one preparing for the famine. Again, if you're Joseph and you're going, God has made a promise to bless Israel, to keep them alive and keep them around, how on earth does me getting thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, going and working for a rich guy, back into jail, how does that all work? God, you've not kept your promise. But God's going, oh man, I'm keeping my promise and then some, just you wait. Then the famine's so bad that Israel's sons go down to Egypt. Joseph kind of plays coy with them a little bit, messes with them a little bit to see if they're genuinely repentant for what they did to him. And eventually all of Israel moves to Egypt. Verse 20, the king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Ham is a son of Noah, which is the people from Egypt. The Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts, the people of Egypt's hearts, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. And then this is the Israelites are now enslaved. 
So here's the thing that I want to point out in this little chunk is that God draws straight lines with crooked lines. God draws straight lines with crooked lines. Every single one of Joseph's brothers, even the one that was going to go back and save him, still had sinned towards Joseph. And God didn't go, oh man, that plan's messed up. Gosh, I got to Got to come up with something else. God goes, nope, this is entirely a part of my plan because God is the only being in the universe that can use someone's sin against someone else to further his plans and to glorify his name. So when the Egyptians locked up the Israelites and enslaved them, building whatever monuments to the Pharaoh that they did, that was sinning against the Israelites. And it gets worse. They, they go, oh, there's too many of them. We need to start killing the young ones especially the males, all of this happens not because God's at a loss, but because this is God writing his story. And from our perspective, it looks like a hot mess. But from God's perspective, just you wait to see what I'm going to do with this. Verse 26, now we move into the Moses section. He sent Moses, and if you remember Moses, some of you think Charlton Heston. That's the, the first picture you see. Others of you are like, I don't know who that is. It's fine, either way. Moses was an Israelite baby whose parents put him in a, a basket in the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And then she adopts him. So he's raised in the Egyptian, an Egyptian household, but he's Jewish in origin. Through a bunch of circumstances, God calls Moses. But he doesn't call Moses by saying, hey, you're a great guy and everybody loves you. No, he calls, called Moses after all sorts of different situations that didn't quite go the way he planned. He then calls Aaron to help him. These two, verse 27, they performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham in Egypt. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. So Moses and Aaron go back to Egypt and instead of just saying, hey, let my people go, and, and Pharaoh goes, okay, I'm convinced, go ahead and go. Instead, there becomes this battle between the gods of Egypt and the God of our universe, the true God. And Moses and Aaron are God's spokespe spokespeople. Ten plagues come their way, and the reason why they start with the darkness, which is the ninth plague, is that this is the plague that broke the back of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worship the sun. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh's name has the word sun in it. Their main god was a sun god. And so they worshiped this god. So all of a sudden, it goes pitch black. And there's no explanation. And there's no flashlights. And there's no fire. It's just dark. And the Egyptians were like, get out. We're done. Pharaoh goes, nope, I'm not done with these people yet. It would take one more plague. Verse 29, he turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even the chambers of their kings. I love that part where uh, Pharaoh goes to his magicians and he goes, can you guys do this? And they're like, yeah, we can make more frogs. I think Pharaoh meant, can you make the frogs go away? I don't need more of them. But it says in, the, in, in Exodus that they were everywhere. There were flies and gnats Hail from sky, fiery lightning bolts, struck down their vines and fig trees, scattered their, shattered their trees in the country. He spoke and locusts came everywhere, which devoured all the vegetation. And finally, 36, he struck down all the firstborn in their land and the fruits of all their strength. So Pharaoh's oldest son, the one that's going to take his place, dies and Pharaoh goes, I'm done. Get out. 
What was this all about? Well, God positioned all of this because what he's doing is he's saying, Egypt is the number one. Egypt is the best of the best. I've got this small group of people who worship me only, and I'm going to show you how all of the gods of Egypt are false. They are not true gods. There is one true God. Verse 37, and I love this. And I didn't, I, 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 so many times I read Exodus and I didn't catch this. I, I'd seen this a few years ago, and hopefully you've seen this, but maybe you haven't. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among them, his tribes, who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread of them had fallen upon it. So first off, there's not a single one of them that is lame or sore or has a rolled ankle. They can walk. Every single one is ready to go. But even more than that, the Egyptians are like, you know what, get out of here and here, take our gold, it's back pay. Take our treasure, we don't want it. See, what had happened was Israel's God had so overwhelmed the Egyptians' gods that they said, our gods don't exist, your God is real, and we don't want to make him mad, so go. And as you're going, please take all my gold. The Israelites were given treasure from the Egyptians as they left. Later on, they melt this treasure down and make an idol out of it. You ever wonder where they got the gold to make the golden calf? This is where they got it from. The Egyptians handed over their jewels. They were saying, go, get out, take this with you, and make sure your God doesn't stay mad at us. Again, not the way you would have planned the story. Verse 39, he, God, spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. Now, they didn't really ask for the quail, kindly at least, We'll get into that a little bit more next week when we look at Israel's failures. But God provided for them even though all they did was complain. He opened up the rock and water gushed out, verse 41. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his promise and Abraham his servant. So why did God provide for Israel in the wilderness in spite of their grumbling and complaining? Because he had made a promise to Abraham back at the very beginning. God promised And so he kept his promise. You know, the Israelites wander in the desert, but this isn't about the Israelites, this is about God. But God brings them through in spite of their complaining and groaning, so much so that a whole generation had to die before they entered the promised land. Verse 43, so he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. All of this is meant to point us to the fact there is no way Israel could have gotten into this position on their own. And if Israel was going to write their own fairy tale Disney version of this, it would not have involved all of these detours and subjugation and death and things not lining up the way they're supposed to be. Instead, God's picture is one of, I'm going to put you and take you where you didn't ever want to go to grow things in you that you could not do on your own. God's redemption, God's spiritual growth of Israel is all possible because he kept his word, and to Israel, it sure looked like he was not keeping his word. It's an impressive list of all the things that God did. As a matter of fact, there's no way Israel can repay this debt. You look at what God did. He remembers them. He makes a covenant with them. He confirms it. 
He was making sure they weren't oppressed, they weren't rebuked. He rebuked kings. He called down a famine but provided for them. He sent leaders like Moses. He did the 10 plagues. He brought Israel out. He fed Israel. He led Israel. Is there any way Israel can repay God for this? How much would Israel have to do to repay God for all he did? And the answer is, there's no way possible. But what does God ask? Verse 45 tells us that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. So from verse 7 all the way through verse 44, here's all the things that God did, and in response, all he wants is us to submit to him and follow his commands. This is what one author writes. This is the biblical rhythm. God's grace and our obedience are not equal. Balance is on a scale. God's grace is inexhaustible and endless. God's grace always outpaces our grateful response. It is precisely for this reason that we delight to live in holiness and reverence. He has been so, so good to us, supremely in Christ and the gospel, and this is the greatest indicative of all. This is the greatest action that he's done on our behalf. So this remembrance that we're called to do, it makes perfect sense. We're to remember all the things that God did for all of the believers, and especially the things he's done in our lives. God has shown that he is faithful. God keeps his promise. So I want to highlight one more promise that he kept. So this salvation that Israel had, they entered into the holy lands, the, the promised land, Canaan, the modern-day Israel. But the salvation wasn't complete. Yes, they said that they would keep his commands. And yes, that was the purpose. But we know they failed over and over again. Just like us, we fail over and over again. Something more was needed. Though they could look back and see all the miracles of Israel's time in Egypt and everything else, this was not enough. They needed a change from the inside. So as great as Abraham was, there is a greater Abraham. And that greater Abraham is Christ. Jesus Christ is a true and better Abraham. He's called to leave his comfortable life, leave his known life, and go out to create a new people. So Abraham is a pointer to Christ. Joseph, pretty amazing guy in the end. Took a little bit to get him there. It's an amazing story. But Joseph can't save Israel. Joseph can't change Israel. We need a greater Joseph. And in Jesus, we have a greater Joseph. Joseph was taken captive and killed and raised to the right hand of the throne, not of Pharaoh, but of God, to save those who betrayed him. We need a better Joseph. Moses, pretty amazing, right? Redeemed Israel, took on the greatest nation in the world, worked miracle upon miracle, walked a group of slaves out of the biggest kingdom in the world, not empty-handed but with treasure. Jesus is a greater Moses. He is the one that stands between us and God, and his treasures make the treasures of Egypt pale by comparison. And finally, that rock that was struck in the wilderness with the water gushing out, we have a greater rock. Paul says that rock was Jesus. He was struck on our behalf, and what flows out is not just regular water. It's water for eternal life. In this desert world, we have eternal life given us. So the promises that God made to Abraham 
still apply. The God of Abraham, who kept his word to Abraham, kept his word to Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Joseph, all the way through all of them, is the same God we have now. So what promises can we call on right here and right now that are true, not because we're the best of the best, not because we are something special, but because Christ was something special. We belong to him. We belong to God through Christ. These promises are now ours. So here are, I would say, four promises that if you're going to write anything down, write these verses down or see me afterwards and I'll give you my notes. These are promises that we can call on right now. Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I, this is God talking, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a verse that we can claim. That's a verse that we can go, he is there to help me. If he is my God, this promise is for me. Matthew 28, 20, another great promise. I am with you always to the end of the age. There's not a place you can go where God is not with you. Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not going to say you're going to win the megabucks. It's not going to say you're going to go and get the best job, the best car, the best life. But what it's saying is there is nowhere you can go where he is not going to be with you and he's going to provide for your needs. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He calls us to obey. He calls us to do the things that he has told us we need to do. And he says, I'm going to provide the strength by which you do it. What a promise we can grab onto. But one more promise. And this is one that I think really connects us with Israel. Israelites were waiting to get into the promised land. And it kept seeing like it was farther and farther away. Oh, we're going to Egypt. That's the opposite direction. And then we're wandering in the wilderness. Joseph going, I thought I was going to be the one that was going to provide for everybody. But look at, I'm going the opposite direction. Is this going to happen? There is one more promise that we need to look at. And that's the promise that Jesus is coming again. Jesus, when he left earth, he said, I am going to return. And it sure seems like it sure seems like it's not happening. Some of you have been waiting a very long time. Some of you are newer to the faith and you're going, oh, it could happen yeah, a couple hundred years from now. But it sure seems like things are a hot mess. And is this really, Lord, how you're going to make it all work out? Acts 1 111, the angels, as the disciples are staring, looking at where Jesus had disappeared. And they said, Jesus will come again like you saw him go up into heaven. Matthew 24, 3 says, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. It seems like it's not going to happen. Seems like God is not keeping his word. But it is going to happen. We have a God who has shown he is consistent throughout. He's kept his word throughout and to much worse people than us. So he's going to keep his word on this. Titus 2.13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our glory, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Revelation 1.17, which tells us the end of the story. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Now, it may not make any sense to us right now. How is this going to work, Lord? You're returning. This makes no sense. But think about what Joseph felt when he was in the pit. Think about what Joseph felt like when he was in prison. Think about Moses when he got kicked out of Israel. I thought I was the savior of Israel. Think about Abraham when he was told to leave everything he knew and go to a place that made no sense to him. God, did you not keep your promise? And the whole time he did because God's wisdom is greater than ours. God's God's plan is more intricate than we could ever understand. So what that means is if you're here today, you are here because God brought you here. You have an opportunity to submit and love this God who's not only kept all of his promises, but is going to keep the last one, which is Jesus is going to come. And when Jesus comes, he's going to judge each and every one of us. And if we're in Christ, if we're his Jesus' perfect life, his perfect death is on us. And he'll say, welcome into my kingdom. Welcome into eternity. But if you're not in Christ, you are still standing there fully clothed in your sins. And the judgment of God is going to be upon you. And there will be no second chances. There will be no do-overs. That's the promise of what's coming. And so today, don't let today go by without making your peace with God by submitting to him and saying, I want to be a part of your family. I want to be a part of your kingdom for now and through eternity. And he promises, the same God who kept all of his promises, he promises he will hear you and he will send a helper to fulfill that prophecy in Isaiah. I will be your helper. Don't miss that opportunity today. Let's pray.